the Tomes and Tropes podcast, where books and friendships collide. I'm Becca. And I'm Carrie. And we're two friends who love to talk about books. Today, we are talking about The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Stakes. So again, we both love The Hunger Games series. And with us both wanting to read the book before or right around when the movie came out, we thought it was a great book to start our podcast. And so this week, we are doing part three. Last episode for this book. We're so excited. For our content warning, at the beginning of each podcast, as usual, we are providing a content warning for both the book and the specific podcast episode. This book is classified as a young adult dystopian novel, but is rated PG-13. Because of this classification, our content while discussing this book will be rated PG-13 as well. I do want to note that this book was surprisingly graphic. There's not too many graphic scenes in this part specifically, but um, if there are any, if there is any graphic content that we talk about, we will give warnings before it approaches. With that, again, spoilers. We will not be spoiling any future chapters in this book because there are no future chapters in this book. <laughs> Imagine that. So we will be covering all of part three. So if you have not finished part three, there will be spoilers for part three in this section or in this episode. We also will have spoilers for any of the books from the original trilogy, as well as any movies from the original trilogy. It is now time for our one-sentence summaries, where we summarize each chapter we are going over in this episode in one sentence. In this episode, we will be talking about chapters 21 through 30, also known as Part 3, The Peacekeeper. We will also be including the epilogue in this episode as well. Chapter 21. Coriolanus Snow is confronted with the evidence of him cheating in the games, which lands him as a peacekeeper in District 12, where he meets his new bunkmates and Sejanus unexpectedly saves his life for once. Chapter 22. Sejanus is back and is catching Snow up on the news from the Capitol, where this year's Hunger Games is not being discussed, but will continue in future years, and Snow has graduated from the Academy. Chapter 23. Snow encounters Mockingjays for the first time at the hanging, but then is free to go to the hob where he reconnects with Lucy Gray. Chapter 24. After reconnecting with Lucy Gray and catching up on all that has happened, they walk back to the house where Sejanus and Billy Tope are talking over the map of the base. Chapter 25. Coriolanus takes Strabo Plinth's place, trying to keep Sejanus in line despite his meeting with Billy Tope about rescuing Lil, and finds Sejanus's secret stash of money after taking the officer's exam. Chapter 26. The peacekeepers have been tasked with collecting Jabberjays and Mockingjays for the laps. Snow learns how they work and how they were used during the war. Chapter 27. Snow and Sejanus accompany the Covey to the lake where they debate the ending of the Lucy Gray song and the humanity of people, while Sejanus seems to continue to sneak off and get into trouble. Chapter 28. Snow sends the recording of Sejanus and the Rebels' plans to Dr. Gall through a Jabberjay, and then a fight breaks out where Snow kills the mayor's daughter and Billy Tope is shot, then Sejanus is taken to the hanging tree because of his new rebel status. That was a huge chapter. <laughs> Chapter 29. In the wake of Sejanus's death, the commander's birthday party sets the stage for Lucy Gray and Snow to discuss the idea of going north like Billy Tope had originally suggested, but the morning brings news of Snow's reassignment to District 2 for officer training. Chapter 30. Snow meets Lucy Gray at the hanging tree, and they go to the woods, but he lets it slip that he killed three people. Then she goes to find Katniss, then disappears. 
She taunts him with the hanging tree song and he gets bit by a snake that hid in her orange scarf. Then he hides the guns and goes back to base, determined to forget Lucy Gray. Epilogue. A few months later, Snow has been taking classes at university and decides to visit Dean Highbottom, where he finally gets answers about the falling out between Highbottom and his father, and then dishes out a death sentence, ensuring that Snow lands on top. Oh, I will say getting that these chapters into one sentence was very hard. Very hard. That's so kind of part of the happened. fun, though. That's kind yes. of why we do it this way is because we we have to be so intentional about the really important parts of each chapter this is true this is true now on to our initial reactions and thoughts of part three and I guess the whole book so part three was actually my favorite part of the entire book it was my favorite part because I got to get an inside look into district 12 before it was the district 12 that we knew Not only that, I loved getting to see District 12 from a peacekeeper's perspective and see their world in District 12. And as you've all probably noticed, I love any type of callback to the original trilogy, which I think this part was full of. We really got to see and understand what Katniss's world was like and what her culture kind of was. And just I think that brought, for me anyway, a lot of understanding about her. We didn't get too much of this in the trilogy, if I'm remembering correctly, so I just really loved this so much. I also really loved, in this part, feeling hope for Snow and Lucy Gray, uh, maybe making it until he starts to turn into the snow we know from the trilogy. We can really see... (laughs) We can really see his spiral, which I think was phenomenal by Suzanne Collins. I think I just... I really felt for him... He really had me feeling bad for him and really starting to love his character until he started to be crazy. So I think I could have had a quotable for every single uh, every single chapter multiple times. So I definitely had to condense our quotables in this episode. What were your initial thoughts and reactions, Becca? Okay, I'm just going to be honest here. Part three was probably my least favorite of the whole book. I did not like part three for a number of reasons. First, we were introduced to way too many characters too late in the book. We got introduced to the whole Covey, which is, or the whole Covey, which is five characters alone. And then we got introduced to his bunkmates, which technically, really, there's only two, but I'm pretty sure somewhere in the book it mentions that the the group that he's in is like a total of 10 people or something. And you kind of see that throughout the book too. So even though it's only really two that get named, we get, we are kind of introduced to more people. And then we get the... I'm not counting Billy Tope in the cubby, so we get him as well, and we get Mayfair, and we get the mayor, and Mm. we get the the commander, and it was just, like, constantly being introduced to characters that we were supposed to kind of get to know and have feelings about in a very short period of time, and that just, like, was too much for me. Interesting. Next – 
we were in a new setting in part three of the book. So not only were we introduced to all these new characters, we were all, or we were introduced to this new, I'm going to call it world building. And I know it's not (laughs) because I know it's not fantasy, but we were introduced to this new place in district 12 that also, instead of moving the story along, I felt like chapter, like the beginning chapters of this, of this section were again, just really setting the stage rather than moving the story along, which is kind of what I wanted here. So, I mean, we get the train and then we get the the base and then we get the cubby house and then we get the lake and then we get the town square and then we get the hanging tree. Like we're, again, we're introduced to all of these places that we, I wish I would have been introduced to maybe earlier or just had it in a separate book because I, there were some parts of this book of part three specifically that I really wanted to like dig into and I wish we would have had more time in certain scenes than we did because it Mm. it felt very rushed to me I do think part three could have been a second book I think it could have been parts one and part two and then ending on that cliffhanger of him becoming a peacekeeper and then part three being its own book and in its own setting and all Mm. those things I think it could have been that I wouldn't have minded a second book. Suzanne, if you ever hear this. <laughs> Excuse me, Suzanne. <laughs> I would love more content. Thank you. Yes. Now, we love Pan Am. Um, and I think I do understand why she did it, to be honest. I mean, we were in District 12, a good portion of the original trilogy. So it, sh- it felt familiar. And I'm not knocking that. But I do think that this is a a different District 12 than we have known in the original trilogy. And I think that was why it was hard for me to wrap my brain around because I was like, this isn't the same District 12 that I know. I want to know all of these details, but it's too late in this story for me to get them. Now, with all of that said, I really liked the ending of this book, and I felt like we wrapped up so many storylines in a way that... I feel like a lot of books, not that they don't, but I felt like we, I didn't feel like I needed more information when I was done. So, for example, we wrapped up the Sejanus ending, and even though it really wasn't at the end, like, I felt like we got a conclusion to his story. We got a kind of conclusion for the Lucy Gray story, but we more got a conclusion to their relationship, which is fine. We got a conclusion to the Dean Highbottom controversy or conflict there. And we got a conclusion to the Dr. Gall relationship, you know. And we do get Snow's eventual decline into madness. That isn't something that we we don't get to see. We are very much a part of that. And I really did enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So even though I didn't really like part three, I did like the ending. And I think that part of... Because I like parts one and part two so much, I think having a good ending kind of allowed me to give this whole book overall a little bit more grace. I will actually disagree with you in one. I mean, I loved part three, but I will disagree with one specific thing. I think I would have loved to see more of how Snow moved to president, especially because Mm -hmm. in the original trilogy, we find out he became president super young. So I would love to see how that happened. And like, I think that's my only, I would have loved a little bit more in the epilogue of that, maybe like a couple extra, like a chapter worth or something. 
Yeah. I love that we have different opinions for this part because I feel like we both enjoyed part one and two. Yeah. But now we have some tension. Yes. And, you know, I do agree with that. I agree. We, I would like to see more about his ascension to the presidency. I would have, even if it was like a paragraph at the very end of the book of like, (laughs) he spent so many years in university and then was the youngest president ever. And like blah blah blah, whatever that looks like like Mm -hmm. and maybe we will get another book I haven't heard anything from Suzanne Collins about writing another book I know there are probably other stories that I would like to see beyond that ascension to be totally honest I would love to see Haymitch I would love to see his Hunger Games. I would love to see Joanna or Phoenix Hunger Games. I think Phoenix Hunger Games would be really cool I like I I think I would rather see those stories than Snow's Ascension, but I think it could be cool to bring that part into one of those stories. So we'll see. Oh, I would have loved to see BT's Hunger Games. I think we know how it ends, but I would love to see his Mm -hmm. I, I, I would I would just love to know more about him. So I think. While I do agree, I wish we had gotten that story. I think there are other stories that I would wish that I would want to see rather than just talking through his ascension. Oh, such good stuff. As you all can probably already tell, we have a lot to talk about with part three. So <laughs> Hang we're in there. so excited. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are going to get into our next segment where we are talking about some of the characters introduced and some of our meet cutes. So we're going to start our start off with Maud Ivory. So she is a young cubby member with Lucy Gray, who we know can hear a tune once and remember it forever. So amazing talent, very jealous. She is Lucy Gray's cousin and is a favorite in District 12. So I actually did some digging on Wikipedia and Maud in German means powerful battler and Ivory refers to the color of piano keys. So I think that was just a little interesting i am i'm curious and we could talk about more of this in our theories segment here's a little preview foreshadow of what's to come in this episode but maybe we could talk about what that could potentially mean and why she's important but just a great i loved meeting mod ivory and yeah so the next meet cute or the characters we met here are smiley and bug i I group them together just because they're, we don't know too much about them. Um, but Smiley was from District 8, and Smiley seemed to like his work as a peacekeeper, even though he was only there for a short time, and thinks they have it good as can be with money going back to his family and food always being provided. So, and then we have Bug. We know he is from District 11. Bug was paired up with Snow to catch the Jabberjays and Mockingjays, and he was very good at it from his experience with trying to uh, climbing trees while harvesting in district 11 so i thought that was a we got to get to know both of them a little bit at service level and i just nod to them 
I think I just want to add here for Smiley yeah. and Bug. Bug, one characteristic of him is that he tends to get very inebriated, and that is mentioned <laughs> multiple times. And I forgot I just, about that. <laughs> I just I feel like we get references to his inebriated snores like multiple times, and I just think that's <laughs> hilarious. I love um, that. <laughs> but second of all, I loved. And I know I just talked about how much I didn't like being introduced to all these characters, but I did like that we were introduced to Smiley and Bug mainly because of what you said, like they're from the districts and they became peacekeepers. That's not something that I had ever realized that was something that could happen to a district person was to become a peacekeeper. And I think that that allows for people in the districts to be able to climb the ranks more than we had originally thought we like Mm -hmm. I don't know about you Carrie but when I was reading the original trilogy I felt like they were kind of stuck doing what they wanted to do and really the only way for them to have a better life would be to have their kid in the hunger games and have them be a winner and have those that prize money coming back so i really enjoyed this perspective of well no there's actually another path here and before I had just thought that all the peacekeepers came from the capital. Yeah, me too. I definitely liked seeing that. And I am, because of reading this book and doing this podcast, I am rereading the trilogy. So I'm excited to kind of pay more attention to the peacekeepers Mm. because I think we got that unique perspective. All right. Our third meet cute is Billy Tope. So we know he is Lucy Gray's ex-boyfriend who was a part of the Covey before he betrayed them, and I believe he cheated on Lucy Gray with the mayor's daughter. I wrote this down, but put question mark. I I know there was, like, a lot going on with that situation. Yeah, I think we can can bet that he was cheating. I don't know if we can go, like, I think it depends on what your level of cheating is, like, what your definition is there, but I'm pretty sure he was dating or trying to date or going steady with both of them at the same time so I think that's what it was which is why Mayfair didn't like her as much Mm -hmm. so I think that's like where that tension came from Mm -hmm. but we're not going into Mayfair this time so if you want to talk about Mayfair with us please just reach out to us on socials so um carrie is so much better at plugging our email address <laughs> at our socials than i am i'm just, I just like really talking. want an email <laughs> please send email. us an email that's all we want even just hello i would love that <laughs> i love emails it's like kind of like the letters of i still love receiving letters in the mail but yes. like emails now i'm like oh like you spent you thought enough of us to like actually write an email that's just a special thing (laughs) i love it okay so sorry got on a tangent there (laughs) (laughs) so tope we actually learn is a rebel and wishes to be free from the capital Mm -hmm. so that was an interesting um turn of events that i wasn't quite expecting from him I think we get a lot of parallels between Billy Tope and Gail mm. um, because I think Gail has a lot of similar type tendencies to how Billy Tope is. We get because I'm pretty sure in the original trilogy, Gail is the one who suggests to Katniss to run away and go go north and live off the land. And yep. 
he's the rebel, you know, he's the one who really, he's the one who gets like Katniss's family out and goes to District 13 and all these things. And I do think that Billy Tope is a very similar type character and another love triangle, right? We get this. Love to hear it. We get this other <laughs> love triangle between him and Lucy Gray and Snow. So I, I do think we, there are a lot of parallels to him. He's a very interesting character. And drum roll, please, as promised. I can't control my eyes. Sorry, all <laughs> me, me neither. So we have Lucy Gray Baird. I know we met her in part one, so don't come at me. But she was purposefully chosen to be reaped by the mayor's daughter, and Lucy Gray became our victor for the tenth annual Hunger Games. We know her. We love her. We just she's our girl. So she is a wonderful singer and musician who got stuck in District 12 during the war, even though she is in the Covey and does not have a district. She is named after a ballad that ended describing her fate, which is very interesting. And we don't know what happened to her, but we know she's a survivor and she's an incredibly strong character. Not just a survivor, she's a victor. Mm-hmm. That's important to keep in mind as yes. we go through the rest of this book. Yes, it is. Okay, so now we are on to our quotables. As a reminder, these are notable quotes and or parts that we want to highlight, and these are in chronological order. And for this, we will be starting with chapter 21 and going to the end of the book. Our first quotable is coming from chapter 21, and it is when it is right after Snow has gone to sign up to be a peacekeeper, and he comes back to the house and is talking to Tigress about his fate. And he says, quote, I can only bring personal items that fit in this. Coriolanus pulls a box eight inches by 12 inches, about three inches deep from his book bag. The cousin stared at it a long moment. What will you take? Asked Tigress. You must make it count. So, like I said, in this instance, Coriolanus is packing to become a peacekeeper and was given this box that's roughly the size of a shoebox. And the only things he can really take with him are things that would fit in his box. Even, like, he even says he was told to wear old clothes because he's going to be given clothes and they're not going to save them anyways. So, he chooses to take the following items – Photographs of his family and friends, his father's old compass, his mother's old powder that smells of roses, an orange silk scarf, three handkerchiefs, stationery with the Snow family seal, ID, a ticket stub from the circus, and a piece of rubble from the bombing. These things are all things that connect him to his family and friends, which I kind of thought was interesting that this is those are what he chose. I also want to highlight here that he didn't take anything that connected him to Tigris. He only took Ooh. things that connected him to his mom and dad and yeah. his his friends. Actually, I'm going to take that away. He does he does take one a picture of Tigris. He does take one picture of Tigris, but he doesn't take like any object that would mm. link him back to, to her. 
I also thought it was kind of cool because all of these things that he takes are things that we as readers have seen before, except for the orange scarf. And I kind of liked reading this portion because it felt like we as readers were also packing along with him because these were all things like he, the photographs of his family and friends, we got to revisit his, his family and friends. His father's old compass um, is mentioned a couple of times in the book. His mother's old powder is very heavily there. Mm-hmm. are very heavily present and mentioned a lot. And it feels like we're packing with snow on this new journey with this character. And these items feel familiar and special to us as well, right? So my question for you is Ooh. if you had to pack a shoebox, if you were in this situation, not that you would have done anything illegal or anything, Carrie, but <laughs> if you were in this situation, what would you bring in your shoebox? Well, since I can't fit my actual dogs into this, Mm -hmm. I would bring definitely some pictures of them and my husband and my cat. Mm. Like pictures, I think I love printing out pictures and stuff, so I know that would be important to me. I feel like a pen would be good. I don't know when I would have an access to a pen, but I would bring a pen. I'd probably bring like a mini book if I could fit in it. Like, I have a bunch of little tiny Jane Austen books that would probably fit in there. I could probably fit one or two entertainment. Considering if, as long as they're providing me basic hygiene, I won't include those. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Maybe, like, my favorite candy, maybe some Skittles. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's not that much. The only, like, sentimental thing I would bring is a handmade coaster that my grandma made. I think I bring that with me everywhere. So... Mm I would bring that. That's so sweet. Yeah. What would you bring in your shoebox? I would bring very similar items. I would bring, I would definitely try to fit a book in there. I would definitely bring photographs of my family, my dogs. I'd probably have more uh, photographs of her than I would of anything (laughs) else if we're being honest here. Um, This is a safe space. We can be honest. Yes. I do... I'd probably bring a couple essential oils just because Mm. they're kind of like a creature comfort and they're small. So I definitely think they could fit. I would try to fit a mug in there. I would try to fit my favorite (laughs) mug. I don't know if I could, but I think I think I could make it. I think I could fit. So when I was growing up, my dad, I I used to get really bad nightmares. And when I was growing up, I would always be like a little nervous to go to sleep. And with how the house was, with where the living room was, we had a loft that like went up into the upstairs where my bedroom was. And my dad would always say when I was going to bed, he would say like, just remember, I'm a ba- I'm a f- just a throw away. Like you could throw something from your bedroom down here and oh. vice versa. And like, I would be right there for you. So when I moved out, he wrote on a baseball of like, just remember, I'm just a throw away. And oh. I would bring that because that like, I still like find so much comfort in that. So that would probably be my sentimental item. Beyond so that, I am not like a things person. I so like that would probably be the only thing that like I would take that's like sentimental that's like not a practical practical use. But yeah. I love it. My dad's a gem. He is. 
Our next quotable is also from chapter 21. It says, sometimes he stared out the window at the dead cities they passed, now abandoned to the elements, and wondered what the world would have been like had they been in all their glory. Back when this had been North America, not Pan Am. Okay, so I loved this quote because sometimes I forget that Pan Am is actually based on what is now North America. So just as a quick reminder, the time period that we are reading about here is technically in the future. So like right now we're recording in 2023, 2024, around there. But Pan Am is a very future time period, right? But it's still in North America and that's where Carrie and I are based. So I loved in this instance, it reminded me that we still are in the future technically, but we are also in North America. And this is definitely a closer time period to us than Katniss and PETA would have been as well. Right. So because of all of this and because he is taking the train, I took it upon myself to do a little bit of research and see which cities he would have been seeing that may have been abandoned to the elements as he was taking this train ride. Now, I want to stop here and mention that I love the train. (laughs) I love the train. It's my favorite way to travel by far. So this is super fun for me to research because I definitely, like, definitely, it was so fun. Okay. We're we're train girlies for sure. 100%. (laughs) So I found a map of Pan Am on Reddit from a Song of Earth water fire and air Uh, we'll be sharing this map on our instagram page and while there's some controversy every single map that i could find i couldn't find an official one from suzanne collins so if one exists please send it our way and we can revisit this this little segment but for our purposes today we're going to be using this map and again we'll post it on our instagram page but Based on this map, the capital is kind of in the Midwest in the tri-state area over Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah. So based on other maps that I've seen, this seems to be pretty accurate. So a pretty accurate, like, where the capital kind of is. This is a pretty widely agreed upon space. This means that the capital is very close to Salt Lake City, and for today's purposes, we will be using Salt Lake City as the, quote, starting train station for the trip that Coriolanus goes on. Ooh, I'm so excited for this. <laughs> Based on the map of Pan Am that I referenced earlier, District 12 is over almost all of Pennsylvania, Western and downstate New York, including New York City and Maryland. This is why I want to emphasize the specific map that I'm using, because where District 12 is, is not widely agreed upon. So for this map, it's over Pennsylvania. For a lot of other maps, because it's the coal mining district, they suggest that it's a little bit more south southern, southern than it is shown on this map. But there's not a widely spread agreement, and most of it says most people agree it's at least on the eastern coast. So we're going to use, like I said, the Pennsylvania, New York, Maryland area. Now, for our purposes, this puts us very close to Pittsburgh, which for our purposes today is going to be the last train stop for Coriolanus as well. So 
Now we have a route from Salt Lake City to Pittsburgh. Next, I looked at the Antrax site and it looks like that route would definitely be possible by train. And with that, on that route of the train would be the following cities that Coriolanus would have seen on his route to District 12. First, we have Denver, Colorado, then Omaha, Nebraska, Chicago, Illinois, Toledo, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, and then Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is his last stop. Mm -hmm. I thought those were so interesting. And based on that map of Pan Am, all of these cities would have been kind of out they wouldn't have been close to the district center that are shown on this map so they probably would have been cities that had left to be in the elements they probably would have been abandoned and so him seeing those cities would actually make a lot of sense this was so good (laughs) i kind of think we should do a girls trip and do this route well his route took 24 hours I'm pretty sure somewhere around there. Get a roommate. It'll be fine. Yeah, but again, this is in the future. Travel is even faster. I don't know if we want to go on a (laughs) 24 hour train ride. All right. So, my little quotable from chapter 21 is a quote from him um, from Snow, who is just like going through it. You know, he's in his feels about everything. And he, he had a lot of feels in this yes, chapter. He really did. He was like Mr. Sad. I mean, understandable, but still. Yeah. But he 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 says, quote, and what of him, Coriolana Snow, future president of Pan Am. So this is just another callback of his grandmam always saying he would be the president. And he's basically like mocking himself here. Like He's been pushed out of the Capitol, away from his family and friends, going to essentially an entirely different world. So I just want to point this out that he like thinks this will never happen. Like he will never be the future president. He'll never follow what he's always thought he would do, his dreams and what his grandmam has always expected of him. Yeah, That's just a quick, quick one. So that leads us into chapter 22. Where Sejanus says to Snow, quote, we pour money into our industries, not into the district themselves. The people are on their own. I caught this in my Kindle when I was looking for one of my quotables and was like, oof, we got to talk about this because I I think Sejanus brings up a great point about the priorities of the capital and helps me kind of understand why District 12 is constantly in poverty because mm-hmm. they truly are not pouring money into anything but the industries that provide for the capital themselves. So they're not pouring into the district people because the people can rebel, but the industries don't. And the industries produce things for the capital where the people really don't. Mm-hmm. And the people are usually problematic in their minds. So I think that could be why... I mean, so Janus just brings up a great point about why the capital really is or where their money's actually going because they have money, but they're not taking care of their people. This is like, you mentioned it, like the people can rebel, but if the people are taken care of, they don't want to. Like, mm-hmm. they don't want to rebel. They If they're taken care of, they're going to like 
working and I think of like at a business, but they're going to like working for a company. They're going to like working. They're going to appreciate that the government is keeping them safe and providing for them and all those things. And I think that in this instance, like them not pouring into the people is actually going to cause the rebellion that we know about in Katniss and Peta's era where like they just don't see that. Speaking of rebels, in chapter 23, after the hanging of a rebel leader that had murdered several people, including some peacekeepers, the Mockingjays are repeating his last words, and it finally clicks for Snow what Lucy Gray meant by, quote, the show's not over until the Mockingjay sings. And we talked about that in the last episode, and how, like, what could it mean? What what would it, it like, oh, we just love it anyway, but... He realizes that the show is the hangings, showing the price of going against the Capitol and being a rebel. The show, honestly, is truly whatever the Capitol wants it to be. The games, a hanging, truly whatever they feel is like adequate punishment for the rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this sentence really rings true when the Mockingjay becomes the symbol of the rebellion or the revolution, if we want to call it that. Mm-hmm. When in Katniss and Peta's era. So I think I just love again the show's not over until the Mockingjay sings. Like that's just so much foreshadowing late for the trilogy and so much of understanding the capital and the price of being a rebel. So yeah. just so good. Yeah. I really do love the use of the Mockingjays in in this book in general. And I think you're going to talk about it a little bit later, so I won't go too much into that. But I do like specifically like the Mockingjay singing because really like when Katniss starts singing for the propos that they're they're creating for the rebellion is really when the rebellion takes off, you know, and really Mm. when the people stop listening to what the capital wants them to listen to. So I, I do really love that. And you said at the beginning, like we get so many throwbacks, I guess, throw forwards to the original trilogy. (laughs) And I think this one is so pointed that it definitely is like the original trilogy is here, you know? Oh, yes. I, I, maybe that's why I loved part three so much because the Mockingjay is just so evident throughout the entire part three. Mm. It's just, like, thrown in your face constantly. We get to understand it, why he hates it. So let's talk about it. Chapter 23, (laughs) again. This is a direct quote. Coriolanus felt sure he'd spotted his first Mockingjay, and he disliked the thing on sight. I literally wrote my notes. (laughs) Because (laughs) we love a hate origin story. I just love how he has always been uncomfortable with mutts. We learned this when he is in mm. Dr. Gall's labs. But this one in particular, he has a really strong hate for. He truly dislikes this on spot. And which this wording kind of reminds me of his relationship with Katniss. When she volunteered for his sister, I can only imagine what he thought of her after that. I imagine him having very similar mm. thoughts, like disliking her on spot. Because of her love for her sister and just her her courage. And I think that wasn't really shown too much in the the districts beyond the first two districts who are careers. Like they yeah. they obviously volunteer, but 
I just thought that's very interesting snow very interesting how he dislikes something on spot and I think we see his hate for that continue and kind of surge his anger for the rebellion as the Mockingjay becomes that figure for the rebellion yeah and don't be mad at me but this is out of chronological order but it is in theme orders but in chapter 26 he says this about Mockingjays again Quote, but something about the Mockingjays repelled him. He distrusted their spontaneous creation, nature running amok. They should die out and die out soon. I think this also really applies to his view of rebels later on. Like they, they're spontaneous. They're running amok. They're, they should die and die out soon. So I think in his mind, or not even in his mind, but maybe how Suzanne is drawing this linear connection between Mockingjays and rebels, uh, rebellion mm-hmm. leaders and rebels. Like, I just, I feel like there's a huge line she draws for us in this part uh, between those two. And that makes us probably appreciate it more later in the trilogy. I am so excited to keep reading the trilogy because I I feel like I'm going to see so much more and I'm probably going to be like, Becca, we need another episode so I can just <laughs> talk about everything I saw and missed. That's funny. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see I what think... I can talk her into. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but I do love this. Sorry, I'm jumping in again. Please do. But I do love this because I think – the Mockingjay is an un, um, an unexpected result of the combination of a natural, occur- naturally occurring bird in the Mockingbird and a capital mutt in the Jabberjay, and those two combine into these Mockingjays, and. I think this is so interesting because especially in Mockingjay in the third book of the original trilogy, we get this concern from President Coyne or I guess back and forth of President Coyne trying to choose who the Mockingjay should be out of the tributes. And I think that obviously Katniss is the one who's chosen out of whatever default, I guess, but it what happens in Mockingjay or I guess in Catching Fire is Snow tries to like the capital creates her as a victor right mm-hmm. she she is a victor in in the capital's eyes and he really in capital in Catching Fire he really tries to push her to be a capital creation in forcing this love story with PETA and (laughs) convincing the rebels that this love story was true. And it wasn't out of rebellion for the capital, but it was out of this like true love story or whatever. But he tries to make her into this capital mutt basically, but she still is part of this district 12. Like she comes out of the districts and she truly is this combination of what the capital tried to create and the district's, the the naturally occurring person that is her from being the district and i think that's probably also why snow doesn't like her because she is like she she is the figurative mocking jay but also the literal mocking jay because of the combination of what the capital created and the natural naturally occurring person from the district with 
you talking about love stories, this will go straight into chapter 24. All right, so chapter 24. When Coriolanus goes to meet Lucy Gray in the field, he begins to feel nervous and says this, which is huge foreshadowing for later on in the book. He says, quote, maybe he was not cut out to be a lover. Maybe he was more of a loner at heart. Coriolanus Snow, more loner than lover. And I think this is a great meme. Like you were talking about with Snow in the zoo and stuff oh. like that. <laughs> like this would be a great meme. So if you listeners make a meme from this, please send it to us. I would We'd love, love to, to see, see this one. We love mm-hmm. memes. So he, he we really seem to we see this come to pass in the woods that he seemingly picks Lucy Gray and they go to make a life outside of District 12 and abandons his future in the capital. But then he realizes this would not be enough for him. He really truly becomes a loner and not a lover because his mm. his life is more about himself, which we know even in seeing his relationship with Grandmam and Tigress, like his life is his. And he mm. he just really is more of a loner than a lover. And because he doesn't have any selfless tendencies really. He's very self selfish. So he will never be a cute Taylor Swift's lover song. <laughs> no one will be able to sing that for him. <laughs> so gotta well, throw a Taylor Swift in there anytime I can. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I had this quote as one of my quotables too, and I decided not to expand on it. But what's so funny to me about this part specifically is this comes right after he starts thinking about the food back at the base he's mm. hungry and he's like ah oh, saturdays i think it's like fried bologna or something that yeah. they get or something and he's like ah oh, i'm so hungry like maybe sejanus will tire out and like we can go back and get some food because maybe i'm not cut out to be a lover <laughs> and i just like i that's just like such a funny part to me like yeah dude i kind of get that though like <laughs> when i'm hungry like I'm thinking about food, too. <laughs> yeah, like, um, my poor husband, whenever I get hangry, he's like, oh, my. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I get it. I get it, Snow. When you're hungry, you just don't really care about anything else. <laughs> yes, but you're, like, I do agree it's huge foreshadowing and all that, too, but I just had to throw that little piece I of humor in. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so in chapter 24, we also get this quote, or it's not really a quote, but it's this thought process from Snow, and he is at the cubby house, and Maud Ivory comes out and is greeting him and starts taking, like, tells him, like, Lucy Gray's not here, but she's in the meadow and all these things, and she grabs his hand and starts leading him away, and we get this this quote. And it says, with no younger siblings or relatives, Coriolanus had little experience with kids, but it made him feel special the way she'd attached herself to him, the cool little hand pressed trustingly in his. And I loved this line. And I have nieces and I remember when they were little and they start grabbing your hand and allowing you to guide them and they trusted you enough to do that. Or even better, when they were excited to bring you along on their journey like uh the best right and i used to work at a summer camp where i was a camp counselor for littles too and it was just the best one of the little kids just they start trusting you and they start 
trusting you enough to hold their hand. And snow has obviously the pointy edges. We've talked about that already. And there's no doubt about that. But I think you can see in this, like in this instance, this was a precious moment for him. And I think this is something that we see. I don't remember if this is in the book, but we definitely see this in the movies where he has this, I think it's a granddaughter or I can't remember if it's a granddaughter or a grandniece, but he, in the movies, he's so gentle with her. He like sits and has the little tea parties with her and like watches the morning news and all those things. And that that's just a super sweet scene. And I love that we get that little piece of, of this from snow here. This makes me so sad though, because like he, this doesn't change his perspective of pulling kids into the games mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. it's still something that's present so i don't know he he definitely acknowledges and this is such a precious moment for him but it doesn't change him and that's yeah. that's kind of sad that's super sad do you feel like if he had more time with the cubby and the younger kids that it could have changed his mind I don't think so because I think Lucy Gray was so much of his origin story that her she's really the reason that she that he went mad rather than like I think he did acknowledge like we see earlier in the books that he acknowledges that like he apologizes to Lucy Gray and is like I'm so sorry this happened to you and like he does realize that like she's a kid and we get that from Sejanus as well. Like Sejanus is like, don't forget, like I'm from that litter. So I think like he recognizes that it, at least earlier in the book. But I think his continuation of the games we learn later is because he like is. I don't know. I just think Lucy Gray and that like origin story of like his dissension into madness um, would still have happened. So I don't think it would have changed anything had he had more time because like if it would have changed, I feel like it would have happened when he like I and I wish I could remember if it was a granddaughter or grandniece and listeners. I am so sorry. I cannot remember. Um, I think it would have happened when he if it was a granddaughter when he had kids Mm-hmm. Or when he had a granddaughter or when his niece and nephew or whoever was born, right? Like, I think that would have, it would have happened then as well. And it didn't. So I don't think it would have changed anything. I think if it was his granddaughter, that would make sense. He does talk about wanting children in this book too. Mm-hmm. And how he would want them to live in high esteem in the capital Mm -hmm. so i think he would probably based on that statement alone which is presuming a lot i think he would like treat his children differently than his granddaughter yeah i really i mean i've seen you see that with like a lot of movies where like the big bad business guy mean to his or even bridgerton i feel like bridgerton (laughs) and charlotte is kind of mean to her her kids but I think she would have been like a great grandma like mm-hmm. just like very kind very different than she ha- had treated her kids yeah but that's just yeah. a little example I, I could I could think of yeah but I do think when he does think about kids he thinks about them either in the capital or he thinks about them when he and Lucy Gray are talking about running away mm. so 
in neither of those instances does he think about having children in District 12 or in the districts at all. Because I think by that point, he he starts talking about like the officer's exam. So I think his perception of having kids has nothing to do with the reaping at all. Like, I don't think that's even something that crosses his mind. All right. So in chapter 25, I actually have two for this chapter about Sejanus, where Stowe first says, quote, the thing was he didn't believe Sejanus would ever really change. And later on, when he's going through Sejanus's stuff on base, he finds pictures of his classmates from District 2, but nothing from the Capitol, like none of the Capitol's classmates and very like very specific things that point to like Sejanus what he has been saying this entire time about how much he cares for the districts and district two is his home. Like, and Coriolanus thinks quote, for some reason, this seemed the greatest confirmation of where Sejanus's loyalties lay. Mm. These are two very big quotes, but I looped them together because I could talk about them forever. So Mm -hmm. this, Mm -hmm. this like makes me condense them a little bit. He of course, the first one, he didn't believe Sejanus would ever really change. And we we see this. He tries to push him thinking, like, you can be a medic. You can make a difference that way. But he knows that, like, Sejanus will need to do more and just has that rebellion spirit in him. Mm-hmm. Um, because of where he came from, like, he these are his people and he feels for them. And then yeah. I think here when he says this is the greatest confirmation of where Sejanus's loyalties lay, I think here we are definitely confirmed where Snow's loyalties lie, which Ooh. is to himself and to the capital. So I think this shows like he is for sure a capital boy and that will never, ever change despite his love for Lucy Gray, despite what he sees in the District 12 firsthand. I think we just see that his loyalties lie in his own experience, his own journey, and the capital. That's so interesting. Okay, so in chapter 26, we get this quote. He felt trapped here on base while she could freely roam the night. In some ways, it had been better to have her locked up in the capital where he always had a general idea of what she was doing. It's the red flag reel again. <laughs> it is the red flag. We, I wish we had done this earlier because I think this would have been so funny, but we, like, I wish we had, like, seen and, like, taken note of every, like, red flag that Snow presents and, like, we should have had, like, a, a legit, like, red flag or something because oh, yeah, he like just, a like, one. yeah, he just, just like, continues to show his his loyalties like you just said but also like his his thought process which obviously I love like getting that inner dialogue but I'm sorry what <laughs> like <laughs> we are adding to these red flags here because he thinks about like he thinks about it being better for him to have Lucy Gray locked up so he knows where she is uh-uh. and I think this is such a like a cognitive dissonance for snow and such a huge lack of self-awareness for him like we get this this notion that he himself doesn't like thinking of himself being trapped he doesn't like having the same schedule all the time he he doesn't like being not being able to do what he wants and when and being inside the fence at the base like he does not like it and he wants to be free but then 
he turns around and thinks, but <laughs> it would be better for Lucy Gray to not be free and to be here and lock her up. And even though he doesn't like it himself. And yeah. I think this reminds me of an old quote of something along the lines of like, if you love them, set them free. And if they come back, you know, is meant to be or something along those lines. Right. And I think this is showing very clearly that this is not show snow showing love by any mm. means. Right. Like he does not love Lucy Gray. He likes the idea of her and he likes the idea of having this forbidden love. Right. But he doesn't actually love her and wanting to lock someone up and keep them there for your own personal use and your own perusal is not love by any means. Uh-uh. And I mean, I think we'll talk about Snow's development a little bit later, but big, 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 big red flag. He is a walking red flag here. <laughs> <laughs> he is a walking red flag. <laughs> oh, Snow, come on, man. I love that you said that, like, he loves the idea of her. That's great. Because yeah. he would probably love to be with someone he could control because he's so much about control. And Lucy yeah. Gray is not controllable. No, she's not. She's not at all. Not for you, buddy. Nope. <laughs> all right. So chapter 27. At the lake, one of the cubby members brings Lucy Gray a plant and it has pointy leaves and small white flowers. I think these white flowers are really important. I'll get into that in a second. And she says that it's Katniss. Obviously, this is a huge point to our girl Katniss Everdeen. I don't think you could get more on the nose than this. I I shouldn't even have to say that, but (laughs) just in case. Um, Snow wonders if it's decorative, like the roses that his grandmam grows, or Mm -hmm. um, like what it's for. And Lucy Gray says it's too early yet, and he's confused by that and says that it's too early to eat. And she says, quote, in a few weeks, these will grow into decent-sized potatoes, and we can roast them. Some people call them swamp potatoes, but I like Katniss better. Has a nice ring to it. I like to think I'm funny sometimes. And I wrote (laughs) in my Kindle, the capital thinks Katniss Everdeen is a swamp potato. (laughs) (laughs) So that's in my Kindle forever. Um, But I truly think, like, they think she's just like district 12 that you have to like she's roots and just nothing important nothing to be noteworthy Mm. but lucy gray kind of points that like with her with the beautiful flowers and the pointy leaves it's like a very beautiful plant but it could be used for eating and sustenance so yeah and it has a nice ring to it so we know where katniss's name came from and i love that like you have this kind of difference where like the capital may think she's like just a swamp potato but she's really this beautiful strong flower um the white flowers i think are important here because i know when katniss is burying rue they have some white flowers and i think she's kind of like surrounding her with Mm -hmm. that and like white flowers in the meadow i think are constant um, I would have loved to kind of see more of Katniss in the trilogy, like the actual plant. I don't know if that ever really comes up, but mm. I'm going to pay attention to that in my reread because I I would love to see if Katniss like ate that 
ate Katniss <laughs> in a non-cannibalistic <laughs> way. I think that it, it it does mention that because we get primrose, right? So mm-hmm. primrose is also a flower. And I do think we get reference that Katniss is a flower as well. I don't remember what the quote would be from the original trilogy. But for some reason, I feel like we do get that connection because of Primrose, too. Mm-hmm. Obvious point, too. <laughs> but here we go. Chapter 29. This is after Sejanus has been killed in the hanging tree. Coriolanus is just kind Rip of working Sejanus. through this. Oh. So Coriolanus quote said, or I guess he doesn't say this, but this is the quote directly from the book. Coriolanus buried his face in his hands. He had killed Sejanus as surely as he'd bludgeoned him to death like Bobbin or gunned him down like Mayfair. He'd killed the person who considered him his brother. Then later on in this chapter, a couple pages later, he says, quote, sweat poured off his body and he began to cry. So the second quote, he was here thinking about Sejanus's last words, which are Ma, like he's screaming out for Ma, from, and the Mockingjays are just repeating this. Again, I think the second quote, he's crying and the sweat's pouring off his body, partly because of the hate for the Mockingjays and how they're repeating these horrific last words of these people mm. who are being hanged. But I think he is working through his choices and why he made them and the consequences of his choices because again he's still young like he's 18 maybe 19 at this point but he's still very young and he probably doesn't fully realize what the consequences of his actions will be and he convinced himself when he sent the recording to dr gall that oh they're just going to take him back to the capital and back to his parents and like nothing he wouldn't die. And then when he died, I think that like slapped Coriolanus in the face and he kind of felt bad for a second. I don't think very long, but definitely kind of realizing that he he equally murdered Sejanus like Bobbin and Mayfair, just in a different way. That's so interesting. I did not take it that way. Really? How did you take it? I took it that he was sad I, I think he he was sad about Sejanus I don't want to discount that but I think his tears were not for Sejanus I think they were I like that you I like the second quote like that you said like them being tears for like because of the Mockingjays and I mm-hmm. think that is definitely a possibility but I think that first quote Coriolanus buried his face in his hands he had killed Sejanus as Shirley blah 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 I think that those tears were in fear of his future because at this point we don't like he doesn't think that he's safe. He doesn't think that he is not complicit in Sejanus's rebellion. Like mm. he goes to the commander and learns about the officer exam after this happens and I think this is really tears for for him and grieving for his perceived loss of life because if they killed Sejanus and I do think he killed Sejanus but if they killed Sejanus for the rebellion that he was working on like why and he's so connected to Sejanus that why wouldn't they also kill him and I think those that's where those tears are the main reason for that is because 
what he does after he's cried is he goes and sends Sejanus's money to Tigris in preparation oh, yeah. for them. Oh. So it's like the last, his last gift to Tigris. That made so, me so angry. Yeah. So I think that um, that's how I took his tears was like a tears for, for his life, not necessarily for Sejanus. Such a good point. I love that. And I think you've convinced me that that would Ooh. be. I, I think that's a great point because he is such a selfish person that that's not hard to believe. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely think that I, it's probably like a combination of all of it. Like, I just lost this guy who he was problematic for me, but like... I had an emotional connection with and yeah my life could be in danger I think like the guns too is also another thing in mm-hmm. his brain okay so in chapter 30 we get this quote from Coriolanus and he says no Lucy Gray was no lamb she was not made of sugar she was a victor and this is right after she leaves to go quote find some Katniss but before he goes after her, right? And I think this is such an important realization for Snow. And I really think this is the trigger for his downfall. Mm. Now, I am in no way, no way saying that <laughs> Snow is good or anything. I think he's our big bad, right? But this is the first time that he really saw that Lucy Gray was not just going to let life come to her and like let life happen to her like she was gonna mark her own destiny and i think that's a really important i i think that's a really important realization for him that he can't control everybody right and she wasn't the sweet little thing who's naive and innocent and she wasn't made of sugar right she was a victor and i think this like i said really starts the downward spiral of him understanding that the victors of the games might be more dangerous to him than anyone else Whoa. It's it's interesting, though, because Snow starts keeping the victors under his wing in the capital. So they become his spectacle every year coming out for the games, and he keeps them right under his nose so he knows what's going on. And there's that control piece of it again. But in the end, a victor, Katniss, was his downfall. And I think Snow realized this more than anyone else in the original trilogy, that the victors were actually really dangerous. And I definitely think he realized this more than President Coyne because she was the one who convened the victors and thought she had control of them and she definitely didn't. And she tried to control them and it ended up that Katniss of Victor was also her downfall as well. And she didn't realize that the victors were also going to be her demise because it wasn't just Katniss, right? It was Hamish was on, on Katniss's side. I think BT was also part of that. And she thought she knew what they were thinking and she didn't. But I do think that Snow grasped that he didn't know what they were thinking, which I think was kind of, that's kind of a cool distinction between Snow and Coin that I really loved. And I do think that this quote is the start of that realization for him. All right. Our last chapter, but Oof. until the epilogue, of course, I have one note about the epilogue. Mm-hmm. But We had so a ton of quotables here. We did. And honestly, I deleted like three last night. 
that I had, and then I definitely didn't add all of them. So, <laughs> listeners, this is for your own good. But if you want to chat, I can always do more. Yes, please, please add us. Let's... We'll do a live or something, and we can talk about it. <laughs> Chapter thirty. When Snow is in the woods with Lucy Gray, he thinks, "quote He knew this would be easier if he wasn't such an exceptional person." And he talks about how amazing he is in this quote, but. I'm going to skip this a little bit. If he'd been useless and stupid, the loss of civilization would not have hollowed out his insides in this manner. So he has this whole paragraph of how he's talking about how amazing he is and how if he had been basically like the district people or how he thought of the district people, being living off the land, being in the woods, living on his own without the government, without Panem, he would be fine. But he's not meant for this life. And he is realizing this probably halfway through the walk with Lucy Gray into the woods. He's like, the mosquitoes are probably getting him. There's bugs. He's just like, I'm going to have to build my own house. What? I don't even know how. So he's just like spiraling really bad. Mm -hmm. But he is not meant for this life. He is too proud. Because snow has to land on top. Not live in the woods like an animal digging for worms. So instead of being like in the earth and he always felt like he has to land on top. So I think, again, this is his mindset of like, I I have to land on top. I have to be, I have to give in to my excellence. Like I have to go live a better life. Like I'm the youngest person who has passed the officer test. Like I have to go and do this. So he's just like, bye. (laughs) he is just yeah he is too proud for this life he doesn't want the next roof he lives in to be one he has created himself and he doesn't want to dig for his food and find his food and kill his food every day and go hungry like you were saying too snow has to land on top All right, we're here. We're in the last quotable, finally. Thanks for staying with us. We made it. (laughs) So this is a quote from the epilogue. Quote, people would call him a tyrant, iron-fisted and cruel. There's a lot in this quote before and after that we could talk about, but yeah, so much. But I wanted to point out, they did. They did call him a tyrant. They did call him cruel. They did call him iron-fisted. But President Snow will fall which I love. Sorry, guys. (laughs) So we will see this begin with how he uses poison and the love of others to control his enemies that we learn about in the trilogy because he Mm -hmm. knows that love is a weapon um, that he can use and can use to control people. Yeah. We do find out that he poisons Dean Highbottom with the rat poison in the Morphling, which Mm -hmm. Highbottom is a regular user of. And this seems a super appropriate way to end our quotables for this book by ending with this quote. quote what all of Pan Am would know one day, what was inevitable, snow lands on top. Mm. Those are quotables for Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Ooh. So good. So good. Oh, so good. Okay, so now we go on to our favorite quotes of this specific part. 
And mine is a little bit of a humor um, one. Mine is from chapter 27. And it is, quote, the strain of being a full-fledged adult every day had grown tiresome. <laughs> and so true. Can I just say, I don't think I've ever related to, or I don't think I related to any quote in this book more than I related to this <laughs> sentence because it was like, yes, like, um, I think Carrie and I were talking the other day about like how I realized I was definitely talking to my husband about it, but I was like, who let me be an adult? Like, <laughs> what is, what <laughs> I, I shouldn't be an adult. Like, this should not be a thing. Like, who left me in charge of things? And the strain of being a full-fledged adult every day had grown tiresome. And boy, like, relatable, relatable, relatable. Amen. So my favorite quote is from Lucy Gray's ballad that she wrote for Snow. And the quote Mm -hmm. is, you're as pure as the driven snow. I don't know why I love it so much. And I know driven means, like, pure and, like, untainted, I believe, is what it meant. I had to look it up because I was like, ooh, is this, like, foreshadowing that she knows he's a jerkwad? Um, But it's not. (laughs) But I think I just love that she, like, sees the good in him that we kind of got to see throughout the book. And that he does have some good parts, even though he's a bad guy. But we got to know kind of, like him as a person and i just think that kind of points he's not as pure as the driven snow but um i really love the song too from the movie Mm. it's just so good but all right so that brings us to our final section or not our final section but our last snow contribution Mm -hmm. segment so becca said she has one for us do you want to do that before or after i do mine three I want to do it after. Okay, perfect. So I I'm scared three. that you thought about it and I like didn't read them. So oh. <laughs> no, you're good. I honestly I had trouble with this one, maybe because of the time of night I was doing this outline. But <laughs> um, I did find three main ones that we can go over. And if again, if we missed any throughout this whole book, please email us at Tomes and Tropes Pod or message us on Instagram or TikTok at Tomes and Tropes Pod. Yes. All right. So that brings us to number one. I think how he hated the Mockingjays, and we know a lot of people actually did hate them. Mm-hmm. They were used to torture those in the games and probably for other torture situations as well that happened in the capital. So I think the use of the Mockingjays, even though he hoped that they would die out, I think he realized they could be used as a weapon down the road. We don't get that clearly, but I think maybe Dr. Gall and uh, her lab assistants probably had more to do with that than Snow, but yeah, it, it could be definitely used as a weapon in the games and to make tributes go a little crazy because that would make me go crazy, which we see them used in Catching Fire as well. So yeah. Um, very good at using them now but number two um nobody really had a working tv in district 12 and snow knew that in order to engage people in the games they needed to be able to simply watch it so Mm -hmm. i think that's why they broadcast it in the districts and like they have the screens at least in the movie Mm -hmm. have them up for people to watch and 
Um, I, I'm sure they like, cause we see, I believe Katniss's family had a working TV. Mm-hmm. So they probably did some work in order to make sure they could watch it. Yeah. And now my third one. I'm going to read this directly from my Kindle here. Ooh, okay. Um, it is in the epilogue. So bear with me. It's a little bit long, but I, I feel like it just kind of wraps up his uh, contribution. So here we okay. go. A tribute's win needed to be a win for the whole district. They'd come up with the idea that everyone in the district would receive a parcel of food if their tribute took the crown. And mm-hmm. to attempt a better class of tributes to possibly volunteer, Snow suggested that the victor be given a house in a special area of town, tentatively called the Victor's Village, which would be the envy of all those peoples in the Hovels, if I said that wrong. I'm so sorry. That and a token monetary prize should go a long way toward bringing in a decent crop of performers. So he really made sure it's like a performance and that people are encouraged to participate in the games and it be, I think this would help avoid kind of reapers actions in the games where Mm. directly rebelling so you get more enthusiastic people. But I just thought that was a great quote. Yeah. So his contributions. Well, did I cover your contribution or do we get to hear it? I'm so excited. Yeah, kind of. So in the epilogue, you said like that along with a monetary prize would bring performers, right? So I don't think Snow is the one who brought the monetary prize. I think it was Dean Highbottom because Dean Highbottom gave um, Lucy Gray Snow's prize and gave him gave her the money after she won um and i think like that is that should be credited to dean highbottom rather than giving it to snow so that was what i had pulled out that it wasn't a snow contribution but it was from dean highbottom but i think it's interesting that that like snow expanded on it for sure the victor's village and the district prizes as well but i think he dean highbottom should be credited with that Yes, we will give it to our guy, Dean Highbottom, RIP. <laughs> We're not claiming Dean Highbottom as our guy. Please don't. Okay, sorry. <laughs> That's not a claim. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is a new segment that we're starting into this episode. This is called Theories. So obviously, we have theories about what happened to Lucy Gray. And I'd love to get some of, I've like pulled some of the theories I've thought of and some theories I've seen on TikTok and Instagram. I don't have any specific like people that I will credit, but I, if I see it again, I will give people the credit they are due. We'll also talk about some other theories in the book. I th- I could talk theories all day, so we're going to keep it to a minimum. So here are three of the, I would say the most viable I guess the most likely most likely theories I personally think so the first one is the one I kind of lean towards is that she hid in the woods and ran away to district 13 or to find other people um, that had the similar like ran away to and just wanted to live a quiet life so she left lived a quiet life and was soon forgotten I say soon forgotten because she is not mentioned at all in the trilogy her songs are, 
she is not specifically she like her name mm-hmm. she's mentioned that she's one um because she's yeah. one of the two victors from district 12 but that's the first theory mm-hmm. the second this is where my true crime comes out a little bit <laughs> my love for true crime okay is snow killed her with one of the guns that he had that were hidden in the cabin mm-hmm. and hid her body along with the guns okay never to be found again okay interesting and then the third one is she ran away and hid until it was safe many years later and then came back to district 12 okay there were other theories that i didn't like as much that i've seen going around tiktok a lot is that she's president coin which makes no sense Mm -hmm. at all to me because the age is just not right I know okay. she's younger than Snow, but I just don't think it's right. And I don't think she would want to continue the games, but that's a whole, we could talk about that. Mm-hmm. And then the other theory that I don't think has much like viability is that she's the woman from the black market that gave Katniss the mocking J pin. Mm-hmm. I just think that's too specific. And I feel like if Suzanne wanted us to know, she would make it very obvious. Yeah. So, what are your what are your theories? What are your thoughts? Like what do you think happened to Lucy Gray? Okay, so you told me that there was going to need to be a theories episode at the end. Um, Carrie finished the book before I did. So she had told me that we were going to need a theories episode or whatever. And I got to the end of the book and I was like, why? Like I just did not understand <laughs> because to me, This was so clear, and I think we get the answer from Lucy Gray herself when they are debating the song of Lucy Gray as they're walking to they're walking to the lake. There is the thought that she's a ghost. Um, I forget which of the Covey like mentions this, but there's the thought she's a ghost. There's the thought she wasn't real. There's the thought that she died. But Lucy Gray says, no, she survived and created her own life herself or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's, that's how I took it, especially because every single other thing in that song that's described is almost exactly how the end of the book comes to light. So I do think that she survived. So I'm not gonna lean on number two. Um, I don't think I don't think it's theory number two. I don't think she was in District 13. I really Mm. don't. I do think she ran away and she hid until she was safe. And I do think she could have gone back to the cabin at the lake and the covey just had like kept her safe and kept her fed and all of those things. Like I do think that's Mm. a possibility. But I do think she survived. I don't think she's President Coin. Snow would have recognized her. Oh, yeah. 100%. And I don't think she's the woman from the black market, although I did hear a theory that the woman from the black market was Maud Ivory, and I mm. love that. I would much rather it be Maud Ivory than, yes. be, than be Lucy Gray. So, yeah, that's my. those are my thoughts. I think she survived. I think she hid. And then she maybe she did go back to District 12. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I do think she survived. And I do think Maud Ivory was the one who gave her the pin. I've also seen a theory about Maud Ivory that she is Katniss's like grandma or a oh. because I believe Katniss's family on her dad's side comes from the Covey. 
if oh, I'm remembering correctly. I don't remember so that. I'm going to have to dig into this. I just saw this like yesterday, so I haven't had much time to like research on it, but I, I thought it'd be fun to bring up and Ooh, see. Oh, yeah. I like that. I, the only plot hole with that one I see is that we don't, like I feel like Katniss would have mentioned that it, it was Lucy Gray because Maud Ray would have made sure her memory stayed alive no matter if she was disappeared or if she died like if she I feel like Maud Ivory would have let her her memory live on and we just don't unless it's like not important to the trilogy that we just don't hear about it see I disagree because I think if she survived and she was hiding that they would be so intentional to make everybody forget about her so I think the way Maude Ivory would have let her legacy live on. And I do like that she's the grandmother. I, I do like that because I'm pretty sure every song that Katniss sings is one of Lucy Gray's. Mm-hmm. So if it was, that would have been passed down through through the family lines, which would have made sense. And Maude Ivory, I think, would have passed those down very intentionally. Oh, yeah. But I don't think she would have kept the Lucy Gray name alive. Interesting. Yeah. I I also something to point out since you mentioned the songs cuz Maud Ivory it's like told to us like at least twice that she remembers a tune immediately and it's in her brain forever. So she's mm-hmm. able to like that it kind of explains why Katniss knows those songs. Yeah. Um, whether or not she's her grandma or not. But I also thinking about that theory of Maud Ivory being her grandma is Lucy Gray sings Deep in the Meadow to Maud Ivory to comfort her. And Katniss does the same thing for Prim. So it's kind of like it was passed down through the generations. So, yeah, such a good. good. Yeah, I like that a lot. I have one more theory for you. Question. It's not about Lucy Gray um, or Snow or Maud Ivory. Do you think Dean Highbottom was a rebel and held a lot of regret for joking about creating the Hunger Games and then they became a real thing? And so he wants to stop them. So he was the one who bombed the arena and tried to prevent them from continuing. Mm, Okay, so this is super interesting. And this is one of the... A demerit, shall we say, for the book, in my opinion is we do not get I do not think we get a very clear reasoning for why Dean Highbottom and Snow's dad Crassus actually have a falling out I know Mm -hmm. they're drunk at a bar and Crassus keeps getting him drunk and hands in the assignment and whatever but I don't we don't ever get like a why that was so upsetting to to high bottom at all we just kind of get like he i get that he feels betrayed but to me that's not a huge reason why you would want to take out like like they were best friends like why would you let that come between you and your best friend i just that does not that storyline did not wrap up very well for me i think it's interesting this theory because this would make sense maybe why he was so upset about the about the games and why he was so upset with Crassus 
for for that. I don't think he was the one who bombed the arena. I frankly, he was high half the time. I don't yeah. think he had enough forethought to do that. But I could see him being a rebel. Mm-hmm. Especially because he did give the money to Lucy Gray. Mm-hmm. So I I could see that piece of it, but I don't think he was the one who bombed the arena. Yeah, I I really want to know who did. And I think you bring up a good point about him being high all the time. So <laughs> I don't know if he really could make that happen, especially because he'd probably need help planting them. Yeah. Um, And that's a hard secret to keep. But yeah. If you all listeners have any more theories or any TikToks with theories that you found that we didn't mention here, please send them our way. We'd love to. I love theory theorizing about characters. I also mm-hmm. really don't like that we don't know for sure in my mind that we don't know for sure what happened to Lucy Gray. Or email us. if you agree with one of us, let us know. Oh, yes. Maybe we'll do a score, a scorecard. Ooh. So our next segment is also a new one, or at least a new one for this podcast. It is called Tour de Tome. And after we go through each book on this podcast, we're going to be doing this segment where we go back and reflect on the book and give our ratings of it. We're basically going to take a tour through the book and rate (laughs) different sections. The ratings will be given on six topics. They are plot, character development, writing style, gut feeling, recommendability, and overall rating. And Carrie and I are both going to be giving our ratings on all of these, so you can know kind of where both of us stand. A quick note, gut feeling is the feeling you feel as soon as you close the book. So just wanted to throw that one out there. So, okay, let's start with plot. Carrie, out of five mocking jays, let's do it by mocking jay. Out of five mocking jays, how would you rate the plot? Four mocking jays. Okay. How would you rate the plot? I would agree with that. I would agree the plot was a four. Four out of five Mockingjays. Character development? Character development was a five out of five for me. (laughs) I I loved the development of Snow. And I did like the development of Lucy Gray. I think we got a little bit less of that. But I loved the development of Snow. So five out of five. I would definitely agree with that. Five out of five for character development. Writing style? I'm going to give this four out of five mocking jays because okay. I do enjoy first person views and I think this was perfect for us for a villain origin story. However, I also like to have a different perspective. I'm an Enneagram nine, so mm. I like to know the sides of all stories and relate to all characters. So I okay. think I would have liked to see Lucy maybe in a couple chapters or Sejanus or someone else point of view similar to the Divergent series where we get four's mm, perspective. Yes. So that's that's why not a five out of five. I am going to give it a five out of five. Ooh. Yeah, mostly because of the vocabulary that's in this book. I felt like there were some words in this book that I had to go and look up. And once I looked them up, I felt like it was it changed the what I thought the sentence was trying to say and then changed how the sentence, how the part like was perceived by me. And because of that, like I felt like I learned a lot. I expanded my lexicon <laughs> of vocabulary there. So I'm gonna give it a five out of five. Ready to do gut feeling? I'm excited about this one. 
Interesting. Okay. I literally texted you when I finished it (laughs) or when I was almost done. I am going to give this, you're not going to like me. I'm going to give this a three and a half out of five. (gasps) Oh, no. I know. This book did change my perspective on things. However, and I said this in the last part, I was not super surprised by anything. And I think there was so much blatant foreshadowing that I closed the book and I was like, yep, like that was a, it was a good book, but I I saw kind of the end coming and I don't like when I I like going back (laughs) and rereading books and then seeing the foreshadowing. I don't like having the foreshadowing so in my face. So I think my gut feeling at the end, I was like, yeah, like I saw it coming. Like it was, it was was a good book, (laughs) you know? Well, I'm going to give it a five out of five (laughs) because I closed my Kindle and I said, I want to reread this. Literally was like, I like I loved it. I was so happy. I felt fulfilled. Okay, so I do want to I'm wondering if this is because of how we read the book, Mm. because didn't you read it on your Kindle just straight through, right? Yeah. Okay, so I read it a little bit differently. I read part by part and then went back and listened to the audiobook of each part before I moved on to the next part. And I wonder if that's why I saw more coming because I kind of reread the parts as we went in preparation for the podcast instead of just reading it through. I wonder if I had if I would have had a different perspective if I had read it through. Yeah, the plan definitely was for us both to read it like that. I got too excited and there we go I read the whole book in one one little yeah parts it's okay yeah I'd be interested to see if that like played into our opinions of the book yeah me too okay uh recommendability so I any friend that I know loves hunger games or like we've talked about it before i would give it a five out of five yes if i wasn't sure if someone liked the book or or liked the hunger Games series i would say two out of five really because i think they would have to really enjoy the hunger games books to enjoy this book interesting I don't agree. Ooh. Okay, so I agree. I if I'm somebody... so excited when we disagree. <laughs> <laughs> We've disagreed a lot today. I know. Um, I'm so proud of us. I think, I think this book is enough of a standalone that you don't need to have the Hunger Games. I think you would enjoy it more if you had the Hunger Games background, but I don't think you need to have the Hunger Games background. I think if you like the Hunger Games, I agree with a 5 out of 5 Mockingjays. I'm going to say if you if you're unsure if you like the Hunger Games, I would give it probably another three and a half out of five Mockingjays. However, if you are a romance girly, I'm going to give it a three out of five because there wasn't a ton of romance here. And no. even the romance that was there, like, wasn't great. So I'm going to give that a three out of five. But I think overall, I would give it a three and a half out of five. Last one, overall rating. Five out of five. Lucky Jays. I loved it. <laughs> okay. I am yeah. going to give it a four out of five. Oh, okay. The main reason I'm not giving it a three out of five 
is because I loved parts one and two so much. Mm. Part one for me was amazing. I loved learning about snow and this era and all of that stuff. I loved digging into this this current era of Pan Am. And I loved part two where we got to see the original, like the the beginnings of the Hunger Games. I did not like part three. And I think like that one really hurt. So I if I had just if I had not dug into parts one and two as much, it probably would have been like maybe a two and a half, maybe a three Dang. out of five. But I think this podcast definitely helped there. So I am going to give it a four out of five. And I'm going to argue like I didn't cry with this book, but there were a lot of quotes here that were very humbling and changed my perspective on some things mm. of like how I live my life, you know. So I, I think that's another reason why I'm pushing it up a little bit, but it definitely was not a five out of five read for me. Well, that is the end of our book coverage of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. We do have one last segment on this podcast episode today, and it is our weekly recommendations. Carrie, do you want to go first? Sure. So if you are not a dog parent, disregard. If you are, (laughs) or if you know a dog parent, come back, come back, come back. So If you are a dog parent, though, Benabones are the best. So both of my dogs really love them. And I always recommend the stick one because I think it'll help, like, their jaw not get stuck in a certain way. So Mm. the stick formation is really good. But yeah, Benabones are the best. They have small, medium, large. So for all all doggies, Benabones. So mine this week is going to be, so I love kombucha in general, but mine is going to be the Dr. D's probiotic drink in general. I sent this to Carrie probably three weeks ago, and I think I have converted her to a lover of them as well. But they are a very good beginner kombucha type drink. Kombucha is an acquired taste, 100%. But I do think these, the Dr. D's, it gives you some of the benefits, but it, it it tastes really good and it tastes sweet and it tastes like juice, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it gives you that gut health benefit with having a nice flavor that you may not need to get as acquired to as other <laughs> brands. So that is going to be my weekly recommendation, specifically mm-hmm. the grape flavor. I love the grape flavor. I don't know. Carrie, do you have a favorite flavor? I haven't had the grape one. But both the apple and pineapple were delightful. Oh, okay. I think so they refreshing. also, I think they also have a cherry flavor. So, yeah, I all of the ones that I've tried so far have been good. I haven't tried the cherry yet either, but Delicious. definitely recommend. If you liked what you heard, or please just give us a five star rating on wherever you listen to your podcast and share mm-hmm. with your friends. We also, we almost forgot, we also have a bonus episode Mm -hmm. coming out, I think, Tuesday, I think, of we're going to review the movie and talk about how the book compared to the movie of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. So if you are still dying to talk about the movie and how it compared to the book, like we are tune in then and you'll get to see our reviews of the movie and the review of the book to movie adaptation thank you all and may the odds be ever in your favor